Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> well, welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me are my fellow hosts, Ariel. Hi there. And Daniel. Hi. And today, we're going to be discussing the characters and B.O.W.s of RE3, 1999 edition. Stars. (laughs) Oh, nemesis. And today, we're also going to incorporate a very special part of the show we're going to start doing on these episodes, which is unlockables for each game. I'm pretty excited about that one. All right, let's start this off with none other than Jill Valentine. Yeah, so I won't go into the original details of her early life. That is in the episode about Resident Evil 1. Mm -hmm. But this will be after the mansion incident, starting with... Once back in Raccoon City... Star's request for a full-scale investigation of Umbrella's activities was denied by their superior, Chief of Police Brian Irons, somebody we love from Resident Evil 2. With no support from the American government, Chris Redfield, Barry Burton, Jill Valentine, and Rebecca Chambers traveled to Europe to investigate Umbrella themselves. Chris Redfield went alone to Europe in late August, while Barry relocated with his family to Canada. Jill stayed in Raccoon City to investigate the whereabouts of Umbrella's underground facility along with Brad Vickers before joining her comrades in Europe. However, this was slow going. Her investigation was stalled not only by Chief Irons suspending her from the force and ordering her to remain at home, but her apartment seemingly being under constant surveillance. However, two months after the mansion incident, the investigation was ruined when Raccoon City's water supply was contaminated with T-Virus causing thousands to mutate into zombies. Umbrella took full advantage of the situation and sent in experimental BOWs to test on the survivors. Among these was the nemesis T-Type, a T-103 tyrant, with the nemesis Alpha Parasite within it. This creature, also dubbed the Pursuer, was sent into the city specifically to track down and eliminate all STARS members. Sources differ about when Valentine decided to leave town due to the subsequent chaos caused by the zombies. One account says that she was trapped in her apartment until September 27th or 28th, while another claims that she was that she remained in her apartment until she was forced to leave by an attacking nemesis shortly after Vickers tried to warn her, culminating in her barely escaping from her now destroyed building. So we have the original 1999 reason and the remake reason essentially. Yes. Honestly, I prefer the original reasoning to the remake reasoning. We will dive into that next episode. (laughs) Yes, we will. With our patrons. Anyway, who do we have to talk about next? Well, my boy Carlos. Oh, Carlos. So. Rootin' tootin' shootin' badass. Yeah. He's quite the ladies' man. Or at least makes the comments anyways. (laughs) So, Carlos Oliveira, first I have to say he is blood type O. 
There's a lot of them that have blood type O, I've noticed. <laughs> so, Carlos Oliveira was a mercenary for the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service. He held the rank of corporal and served in their Delta platoon as rear security for Alpha Squad, where he was also their heavy weapons specialist. Oliveira is also one of the few survivors of the deployed squads who served during Raccoon City destruction incident. Hmm. His early life. A man of mixed Latin American and indigenous origins, Oliveira's childhood took place in the midst of violence. Before becoming a mercenary, he spent most of his youth as an active member of a communist guerrilla organization fighting in an unnamed country in South America. There, he became known for his courage, always throwing himself in the middle of danger, as well as his strong sense of justice and warm-hearted, playful attitude. And we got to see a lot of that in RE3 remake. <laughs> I loved the banter between him and Joe. Well, mostly yeah. to him too, Joe, yeah. but I loved the banter. Okay, back to this. When government forces wiped out his faction and sentenced Oliveira to death after capturing him, he was scouted and had his freedom bought by Umbrella Corporation before his execution. Umbrella offered him a contract to join the company's private military unit, the UBCS, in exchange for a new life. He accepted, becoming the youngest soldier in the unit. His expertise in heavy weaponry and vehicle maintenance soon made him a valuable asset. Oliveira also befriended Murphy Seeker, who joined around the same time. And sometime later, he paid for plastic surgery to alter his face. On September 15th, the UBCS was mobilized to prepare for a large-scale operation in Raccoon City, which was undergoing a T-virus outbreak. Four platoons measuring at approximately 120 men among which Oliveira was included, would arrive on September 26, by which point the outbreak had spread out of control due to drinking water contamination. It is uncertain how much he knew about the real purpose behind the operation in the city, but it is indicated that Oliveira believed that UBCS was prioritizing the rescue of civilians. Because the severity of the outbreak in the city was greater than expected, Many mercenaries were killed or mutated in the opening hours. Although Oliveira managed to survive in a scattered team led by Delta Platoon's commanding officer, Captain Mikhail Victor. Accounts differ as to whether they made their base of operations on a tram or a subway train, but both agree that their intent was to make the vehicle operational again to facilitate an evacuation from the city. I don't really think that really matters what the difference is. <laughs> no, not really. No. During this period, another report indicates that Oliveira, working with Victor's squad, managed to rescue some of Raccoon City's citizens and kept them safe while trying to figure out how to fix the rail vehicle. On the night of September 28th, Oliveira met the former Star's officer, Jill Valentine, who was on the run from the B.O.W. Nemesis T-Type, although there are contradictory reports as to how they met. One of them points out that Valentine met Oliveira after intercepting a radio signal sent by him while she was exploring the Raccoon police station. 
A second suggests that Oliveira met with Valentine while he was in the center of the city and they joined forces to reach the police station, where both would expect to be evacuated on the roof by a helicopter. A third account, in turn, indicates that Oliveira met Valentine shortly after she fell with Nemesis from the top of a garage building, where he helped incapacitate the BOW so he could rescue her. Whatever happened, Oliveira ended up taking Valentine to where the UBCS was operating and tentatively recruited her to their team for mutual assistance. And the rest is what happens during the okay. game. So, go Carlos. Go Carlos. I, I like how they say, like, differing reports. When they refer to the games. <laughs> the original, the yeah. remake, the... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the the RE Wiki is a great source for all of the information. We use it quite a bit in the show. So go check them out for the RE Wiki. Oh, definitely. Um, but on that note, who do we have next? We have Mikhail Victor. And sticking with it. So by the way, Jill had blood type B. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> so Victor has blood type A. And remember, in Capcom, I don't think there's a positive or a negative. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll start with a general summary of him. Is that he was a Russian mercenary contracted by the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service. It's a lot of words. Where he served as a leader of the Delta Platoon. He was warm-hearted. Recognized for his impressive leadership abilities and skilled in the planning and execution of operations. All right, I'm going to stop you there, Daniel. I just want to bring up the point that his kind-hearted and ready-to-jump-into-action nature was truly demonstrated when he sacrificed himself on the tram and or train, depending on which one you go by. That was... I like how they tied that in. I like how he portrays like being an actual captain, like an actual team leader, because a lot of the times you see them just being jerks and egotistical and yeah. all of that stuff. But him, he was an actual leader that was willing to sacrifice himself for his men. Yeah. And not even just his men. It was the the rest of civilians on the, on the, the train, tram, whatever you want to go by. He sacrificed himself for everyone on that transport. Yeah, which sucks because he was a really good guy. Yeah, so. I would have loved to seen how it would have ended with him. But uh, we're right back to you, Daniel. In his early life and into Umbrella's recruitment, he was originally from Leningrad in the Russian SFSR. Victor served his compulsory national service in the Soviet Army. He continued after the mandatory two years was up. While it's possible he attained the rank of captain, this is uncertain. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the army was largely demobilized, and Victor, along with many others, were rendered unemployed in a country reeling from economic ruin. Soon the new Russian Federation experienced tense conflict as ethnic minorities fought for their independence. Victor became involved due to his wife, who was from one such ethnic group and offered his support and experience to the rebel cause. During the conflict, Victor was directly responsible for a number of attacks which, include, which included massacres of civilians. In the mid-1990s, after the capture and death 
of his group was sentenced by the Russian government, Victor was approached by the Umbrella Corporation who offered him an amnesty deal. He then agreed to join the company's UBCS in exchange for his freedom and the guaranteed safety of his men. So once again, Umbrella jumps in and saves the day, quote-unquote, from somebody else that was sentenced to death. Well, you know they gotta come in looking like the good guys. Mm-hmm. We're here to save you. Yeah. I, I want to say this, though. I feel like Umbrella really thought it out when they grabbed people from all around the world to create a collective army because there's not really a way for them to collaborate ideas right away to rebel against Umbrella. I think it was about skill. Well, it's it's about skill too, but if it was about skill, they could have very easily just grabbed people from, you know, ex-military people from the US and been done with it. They I think they really thought this out and grabbed skill and regional knowledge because keep in mind they aren't also they aren't a US-based company. They're a worldwide-based company. So they're they're committing war crimes worldwide. And they don't really want well, number one, they've got access to the international knowledge now. And number two, they don't want people to collaborate against them. They probably seen helping him as a way out for him since his com- or his country collapsed, basically, and in economics, basically. And then his wife was part of the rebel cause. So they were like, he's a lost cause. He's going to easily join our group. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. It's more of the fact of... Why are they grabbing people internationally other than the fact that they can't collaborate as well? You know, because different regions you have, different regions of the world, you have different ideologies about things and justice. And, you know, it's a huge ordeal. All right. Back to you, Daniel. So then we move into the Raccoon City destruction incident. In 1998, Victor was serving the UBCS with the rank of captain and was in command of Delta Platoon. On the 15th of September, the platoon was given new orders to enter Raccoon City and had over a week to prepare. Delta Platoon arrived in the city center on the night of Saturday the 26th of September, by which point the T-Virus outbreak had escalated out of control. The orders given by Colonel Sergei Vladimir called for the UBCS to evacuate uninfected civilians, which Victor intended to fulfill. Despite his rank, he was left unaware of Vladimir's secret police, the Monitors, that had an additional order to record their combat with the mutants. Soon after landing, it became clear that the four platoons were not enough to handle the city's mutant population, which had vastly superior numbers. Due to this, the overwhelming majority of platoons were practically wiped out in less than two days. Then we move to the evacuation plan. By September 28th, which was a Monday, the force was disorganized, with Bravo and Echo squads cut off from the rest of the platoon. Victor himself was seriously wounded in the fight with the zombies after he and a number of other soldiers were trapped by Sergeant Nikolai Zinoviev. They set up their base in either a broken tram or a subway car that was inoperative, depending on the sources. One account also indicates that in this time, Victor's squad managed to rescue some of Raccoon's citizens and kept them safe while trying to figure out how to fix the rail vehicle. By nightfall, the group that ended up was Victor, Zinoviev, and 
Corporal Carlos Oliveira with other sources including Alpha's Platoon's Murphy Seeker and Bravo Platoon's Tyrell Patrick. And then we move into the game where they join forces with Jill, as far as that goes. All right. So let's jump to Nikolai, everyone's favorite person. Do you know his blood type is A? (laughs) I like how you introduced that. Do you know his blood type was A? Oh, Nikolai, who's not my boy. (laughs) Nikolai Zinoviev, codenamed Silver Wolf, is a Soviet Army veteran who served in Umbrella's paramilitary as a sergeant in the UBCS, as well as a monitor. He and the USS Commando, Hunk, were considered to be rivals. Oh, wow. Now that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And he was a close friend to Sergei Sergei Vladimir, of whom he may have served with in the Soviet Army. Zinoviev was born in Moscow, capital of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. That's a mouthful. Per Soviet laws on national service, he likely served in the Soviet Army from 1981 and is known to have been in one of its Special Forces Brigades. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Zinoviev was retired and, along with many other former Soviet soldiers, was recruited by Umbrella. Little is known of Zinoviev's career in the mid-1990s, though he was well-trusted by Vladimir and knew of Umbrella's need for him in their tyrant project. Zinoviev served Umbrella and Vladimir in two ways. Officially, he was a sergeant within the Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service, an anti-BOW force. Unofficially, he was part of Vladimir's Internal Affairs Bureau and spied on the UBCS. On September 15, 1998, the UBCS was put on alert by Umbrella HQ due to the deteriorating situation in Raccoon City, which was seeing hospital inpatients displaying symptoms of T-virus infection. On the night of September 26, the UBCS arrived with at least four platoons with orders to eliminate the zombies and evacuate civilians. Zinoviev, however, had a number of other missions to attend to. Being a monitor, he was entrusted with various projects. Firstly, he was to assess the UBCS's capabilities against the mutants to serve as important data for Umbrella over the effectiveness of their bioweaponry. Secondly, he had orders to destroy evidence of T-virus vaccine research going on at the Spencer Memorial Hospital, which could potentially ruin the viability of T-virus weaponry if it got in the wrong hands. Thirdly, he was to observe the Nemesis T-Type, a prototype BOW being sent into the city to hunt down specific individuals. Finally, He had orders to lead his UBCS squad into Raccoon University and recover the Thanatos Project and kill or take the rogue Dr. Greg Mueller into custody. Each successful mission and the additional recovery of data was to give him larger and larger monetary rewards. Overcome by his own greed, Zinoviev agreed to an offer by a rival company to conduct his operations in a manner that would weaken the UBCS's fighting strength 
and share his data with them as well. He was also offered a reward for the death of STARS officer Jill Valentine, though Zinoviev was aware of the Nemesis T-Type and was willing to let the B.O.W. do its job. Now see, that's interesting because the entire time he's been driven by money, but when offered I'm what I'm sure is a substantial f- sum of cash to kill Jill, he turns it down. And the only thing I can think of is why he would do that is because he wanted to save his own skin and going after Jill, he would basically put himself in Nemesis fire. Yep. I mean, greed can only go so far. Like, the greediest thing is life, so... Oh, yeah. As a monitor, Zinoviev did not, in fact, arrive by helicopter with the rest of the UBCS, but was brought into the city in the afternoon by other means, giving him more time to carry out his missions. He noted actions between RPD officers and mutants, and on the following day, lured a pack of Cerberuses to Raccoon University to eliminate survivors, using it as a place of refuge. What a jerk. By the end of the night, he rendezvoused with Delta Platoon, led by Captain Mikhail Victor, and including survivors from other platoons. The platoon would suffer further losses on September 28th when Zinoviev locked a door on them to trap them with zombies. Jeez. I don't know who's worse, him or Irons. <laughs> I honestly think Irons was worse. I do, too. Reports differ as to what occurred on the night of September 28th. One report claims the platoon made their base at the Redstone Street subway station to transport refugees out of the city center. While two further reports claim they made their base in a broken tram at Lonsdale Yard, intent on being airlifted at St. Michael's Clock Tower. In the former report, Zinoviev ran into STARS officer Jill Valentine after killing fellow mercenary Murphy Seeker, who was injured and potentially infected. He would later betray Valentine and Victor to the Nemesis T-Type when it attacked the subway train and escaped. In the Lonsdale Yard reports, Zinoviev became aware he would be a potential target for the Nemesis T-Type due to his proximity to Valentine, and faked his death either after killing Seeker at an umbrella sales office or in a fire at a petrol station. No longer limited by the UBCS platoon, Zinoviev was made free to carry out covert activities on behalf of both Umbrella and the rival company. At the Spencer Memorial Hospital, Zinoviev verified the loss of life and destroyed information relating to the successful vaccine research, killing Dr. Nathaniel Bard in the process. Accounts differ as to his other actions at the hospital. In one, he booby-trapped a safe, which would kill fellow monitor Tyrell Patrick. In another, Patrick killed himself in a suicide bombing, meant to take Zinoviev with him. In both of these accounts, Zinoviev detonated C4 charges that destroyed the hospital, while a third account instead claimed Patrick planted the charges and they were not as devastating. Zinoviev is known to have participated in Operation Emperor's Mushroom early in the morning, on October 1st, where he led a surviving squad of UBCS mercenaries back to Raccoon University to recover Thanatos. Zinoviev was able to get a blood sample 
extracted at the cost of his entire squad. But this blood sample was instead recovered by civilian refugees for creation of the daylight vaccine, leaving Umbrella unable to clone the B.O.W. Before leaving the university building, Zinoviev assassinated Dr. Mueller, its creator and leader. He then destroyed the facility building with C4 charges. Spen really loves his C4 charges. Accounts regarding Zinoviev's final hours after the Raccoon University bombing differ, with several separate accounts for what happened to him. What is known is that Zinoviev was made aware of an imminent plan by the U.S. military to blow up Raccoon City and made plans to escape the city with his data. Three accounts claim he made his escape attempt at incineration disposal plant P-12A. In one of them, he was immediately killed by Nemesis T-Type. In the second, he commandeered a helicopter and was killed in battle with Valentine. In the third, he escaped in the helicopter. A fourth account instead claims he tried to steal a helicopter from Valentine and Oliveira at the Nest 2 rooftop, but failed and was left behind despite an offer to reveal the identity of his buyer. There, there was a second helicopter on the helipad he could have escaped on. Regardless of these accounts and whether or not he survived, what is known for certain is that Umbrella obtained at least some of his reports from Raccoon City. Thanks a lot, jerk. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not a nice guy. Not a nice guy at all. It's, I mean, with him, his character, I mean, he's he's just clearly he's a character that's driven by money and power. Yep, that's essentially all mm-hmm. he is. I do want to say I love the amount of detail that Capcom has put into even the background characters. I mean, you know, aside from Nikolai and, you know, the main characters, our our side characters, as we've gone in and discussed them, they've gotten a lot of detail and backstory behind them as well, which is great, especially for NPCs. Yeah, I agree. Like, going into detail of all these characters makes the story that much more engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I think it's time for a mid-break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, here we are in the middle of the show. Daniel, what have you brought for us this week? Oh, let's switch it up. We're going to switch it up. (laughs) Yeah. Generally, I always try and bring merchandise, so this is merchandise again. Okay. On the website justgeek.com there is an official Resident Evil 25th anniversary premium mug ooh see if you can remember all that to type that in (laughs) so it looks like it's black in color and it's got the Resident Evil raccoon on it along with the 25th anniversary number on there okay and as she says Resident Evil 25th anniversary on the back 
opposite side. I don't yeah. know if that would be considered the back. And the two E's in the beginning of Resident Evil, or actually, sorry, the R in Resident and the E in Evil are capitalized. So both first, or they're capitalized and in red mm. compared to the white writing on it. It looks like it runs $17.99 before potentially shipping. And you can find that on Just Geek, and we'll put that in the Discord and more likely on the Twitter as well. Of course. Once again, shut up and take my money. <laughs> I'm back to wanting the merch again. Uh, actually, I want this as well. It's Too bad. Ugh. I need something to drink my uh, mocha frappuccinos out of. <laughs> you have a Blitzen mug. Oh, goodness. All right, Ariel, what'd you bring for us this week? So, I have... Multiple Resident Evil announcements coming this month, according to new teaser site. Oh? Yeah. Capcom's, Capcom's set up a new Resident Evil teaser site to showcase a month, apparently packed with announcements for the horror franchise. All right. So, it's got nine slots for October reveals, with the first two now filled in with a bunch of gift swag and Resident Evil 4 VR details. And the next three are scheduled for Thursday, October 21st. So when this show releases. Mm -hmm. Monday, October 25th, which is a great day, by the way. And the last on Friday, October 29th. So so you're getting a birthday present from Capcom, essentially. Yeah, I mean, they specifically are going to release information on the 25th just for me. I can dream, right? I can dream. But that is exciting, and I can't wait to see what the next three reveals are. Although this doesn't add up, because it said nine slots, and this is only five, But so we'll see where the other They might be four. in November, too. I like to think that they're probably going to be released in November, the last four are. Perhaps. Or there's going to be multiple... Uh, announcements in one day yeah yeah i'm hoping that capcom isn't going to do one of these things where they use one of the slots to announce that oh you know re verse got brought up and it's gonna get released earlier now oh re4 remake is now coming out on the 25th oh that's great yeah <laughs> i'm i'm just i'm hoping that these are releases that we are actually going to get like future scoops out of and not just hey by the way we're gonna surprise you by releasing this one early you know i'm i'm hoping there's just some genuine and capcom doesn't do us dirty like some other you know video game companies do they're they're pretty good to us so i'm i'm gonna assume positive intent on this yeah i'm excited to see what the next three things are getting revealed Mm -hmm. well this week uh in the re4 vr news um, those of you who haven't got a chance to pick it up yet, uh, a little spoiler here for you. Some of the audio has been cut from the RE4 VR version. So most of it is dialogue that is between Leon and Hunnigan, um, but there are some bits that have been cut from Lewis uh, just talking to Ashley. Some of that's been cut out as well. Did they cut Ashley out? <laughs> we can only hope, but no. Uh. No, they did not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a few bits and bobs here have been cut from the audio. It's nothing that really 
so far, nobody has complained that it's really changed the course of the game. It's things that, I mean, honestly, you could think about. They're things that were maybe not even appropriate at the time of release. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about you know, with his dialogue with Ashley. Yeah, some of it painted Leon in a, shall we say, less flavorful light. And it wasn't necessarily bad what Leon was saying. I mean, he was he was hitting on Hunnigan. But, you know, the, the, the comment from Lewis is super bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not even going to I'm not even going to humor that with any airtime. Just if you're an RE4 fan, you know exactly what lines are being cut. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, on top of that, there has been some uh, leaks about uh, potential games in the future with code names like um, Resident Evil Hank and Outrage. And a lot of people are speculating that another RE game coming out soon may be about Hunk. And the Outrage, they're speculating that RE Revelations 3, that's the code name for that one. I don't know how I feel about continuing on the Revelations. They're I, good. I liked one, but I wasn't much of a fan of two. Yeah, I could see that. Two two goes into the more dark and we'll get to two and we'll we'll get to the revelation games when we get to them in order. We gotta keep an order for our fans. <laughs> but uh yeah, so there's there's another thing for you. I brought two this week because I, I messed up one week and didn't bring anything, so but anyway, let's get back to our topic of the day. All right, and we are back from the middle of the show. So we there's there's many other NPCs in RE3, but none of them take really front page news, so to speak. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into our BOWs. So what do we have first? All right. One of the first ones is the Drain Deimos. They are derived from blood-sucking insects though have evolved to be dependent on human cerebrospinal fluid. Gross. Ew. <laughs> which they extract through a needle-like body part. In their enlarged state, they may kill the victim by excessive force through consuming and extracting without restraint the brain and nervous system, which suffers greatly as a result. Due to this minute difference, they are often confused with their brain sucker relatives, which I will get to in a moment. The creature's appearance is particularly grotesque due to the exposure of muscles brought on by rapid T-virus-induced growth, which forces the creature to undergo repeated molts. Draindamos are asexual all-female species and thus reproduce through parthenogenesis, a form of reproduction seen in some insects where embryonic development is induced in unfertilized eggs. Gotta be a scientist to know about these creatures. Draindamos start to lay eggs when they have consumed a certain amount of nutrients. So what you're saying is you're screwed if you run into a group of these and they get out. Yeah, if they, they <laughs> latch onto your brain you're, or onto your head, you're basically done. Yeah, and they'll repopulate on their own. So if there's like one gets out, you're screwed. <laughs> yes. 
Alright, so right after that, we'll get right into the relative of the Drained Amos, the Brainsucker. Brainsucker is a mutant insect derived from similar means as the Drained Amos. They were infected by the T-Virus during the Raccoon City Destruction Incident by feeding on infected hosts. Unlike the Drained Amos, this host was not a zombie, but another infected organism. This different manner of infection altered the virus enough that the parasites mutated differently, making its appearance distinct. The brain sucker also has two heads. Like other anthropods, brain suckers' blood contains hemocyanin, creating a green hue as opposed to hemoglobin's red. Behavior-wise, the brain sucker acts the same as the drain demos in that they both prefer to live in unclean environments. They are, however, stri slightly stronger and possess the ability to spit poison at their prey. Rather than preying on cerebro cerebrospinal fluid like their cousins, the brain sucker will instead break open its prey's head and feed on the brain with their tongues. That's what I have on the brain sucker. So, what you're saying is super zombie. Well, it's bug. Well, yeah, what I heard was super disgusting mutant bug. <laughs> Spits poison at you and breaks your head open. Uh, yeah, that's, your brain. it's basically a super zombie bug. Like, it's, it's like the evolution of zombie. Like, oh, well, I don't need to bite into your head. I'll just crack it open like a coconut. Like, that's terrifying. Oh, right. And I know that Ariel doesn't like bugs. Do you want me to do the next one or do you want to? You go right ahead and do all of the insects. Alright, so we'll go to Gravediggers. Another insect for Ariel. They are mutants of an anthropod genus which have mutated to an enormous size. They retain the ability to burrow underground and prefer a subterranean environment, though would surface if hunger overwhelmed their natural instincts. The size they could reach was so vast that it could destroy roads above in a manner comparable to an earthquake as their burrowing left huge, vast, and unsupported tunnels underneath. The creatures also developed four long mandibles, which were used to drag prey into their large mouths. To make full work of their mandibles, they would attack by lunging or biting, using their huge bulk to force prey into a corner where it can be trapped and devoured. Their grave digger, the grave digger lays eggs in the ground and sewers, typically in clutches of a hundred. When they hatched, the larvae, known as sliding worms, would transfer, would transform into new grave diggers themselves after a week. That's what I have on the grave diggers. And let's see here. And getting into that, we'll go to the sliding worms, which should be the last insect that I have. And we'll be happy about that. Yep. Let's see here. The gravedigger reproduces by laying eggs in the sewer inside the ground, often in bunches of 100, which we already know. Under these infected conditions, these eggs soon hatch, often in two hours, and the resulting creature is known as the sliding worm. These larvae are another kind of a regular mutant, usually growing to about one meter in length and possessing sharp fangs and elastic, flexible body. These creatures thrive on blood, and when they spot prey, they will leap towards it with amazing jumping power and suck blood from it like a leech, sometimes as much as one liter. After being born, they will shed their skin many times in the course of their development, 
in the span of one week, they will be fully formed into a grave digger. Gross. And that's what I have on today's insects. <laughs> today's insects. I wonder what the exterminator is called in Raccoon City. Dead. <laughs> or scared. <laughs> Bug busters. <sighs> Boo. That's who I'd call. <laughs> so what are some of our other BOWs? Not bugs, that's for sure. I First one I'm going to go over is the Hunter Beta. The Hunter B was a prototype model for the Hunter line of bioorganic weapons, designed as a derivative of the earlier A model. Unlike its predecessor, this prototype was developed by Umbrella Europe. One of the most notable aspects of the Hunter B model was their disproportionate left forearm, the flawed result of attempts to improve upon the A model's attack power. The flaws in genetic modification can also be seen in the tumors covering the creature's body. While this risked obscuring their vision, the B model saw an improvement in its nervous system and agility, allowing it to better avoid injury in combat. Despite this, their attack power was weaker than that of their progenitor. And that is the Hunter B. So next I'm going to cover the Hunter Gamma, or the Hunter Y. This one was developed by Umbrella Europe as well, as part of a reinvestigation into amphibian-based BOWs, which failed 10 years earlier with Dr. Marcus's Lurker. It was nicknamed the Frogger by its development team. <laughs> <laughs> An amphibian take on the Hunter series, the Y model, has no eyes or teeth. Instead, it has a large mouth that allows it to swallow its prey whole and small claws on their webbed hands to attack like other Hunter models. Unlike the previous frog-based experiment, the Lurker, they retain the increased intellect due to previous Hunter research. However, due to their amphibious nature, they are exceedingly difficult to transport and maintain. Additionally, another factor that adds to their weaknesses is the fact that they cannot survive in dry air or heat for extended periods of time, and thus must be kept in strict, watery environments only to ensure its survival. So at first, they were not meant to be mass-produced. Due to their production, even post-Raccoon City destruction incident, the Y series appears to function better in tropical environments, as evidenced by their use on the estate and properties of Javier Hildalgo. That's all I have on the Hunter Gamma. Now, let's dive into everyone's favorite BOW of the Resident Evil 3 game the zombie. Get out. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> nemesis. Stars. So, the Nemesis T-Type was a series of experimental bioorganic weapons. 
created by Umbrella Europe's number six laboratory. The Nemesis T-types were the culmination of the Nemesis project with the successful implantation of NEA parasites within T103 hosts, presenting Umbrella with a highly intelligent and powerful creature. Several Nemesis T-types were produced, though only one Nemesis T-02 is known to have experienced combat. And this one was sent in Raccoon City and nicknamed the Pursuer. Seems very fitting. <laughs> Could have just called a Nemesis and been done with it, but... <laughs> so the Pursuer is a T-103 tyrant clone and thus possesses all of the conventional attributes of a T-103 tyrant, ranging from superhuman strength resilience, and regeneration, as well as limited intelligence. However, unlike its brethren, it has been further augmented by the Nemesis A parasite, giving it newer enhanced abilities. Thanks to the Nemesis A parasite hijacking the body, the Nemesis T-type not only possesses human-level intelligence, but it also demonstrates rational thinking and self-awareness allowing it to solve complex tasks on its own, such as the handling of weaponry in combat. That's one thing that really makes him terrifying. Oh, yeah. The fact that he has human-level intelligence. Oh, yeah. <sighs> That's why he's one of my favorite BOWs, because he is truly terrifying, because he is always one step ahead of you. With his big old guns and whatnot. Ugh. Due to the chemical secretions of the Nemesis A parasite, the tyrant host skin has suffered from brown staining, giving it a corroded appearance. These secretions also have regenerative properties, which further enhance the existing regenerative abilities of the tyrant. However, the effects of the continual T-virus exposure means that the more times Nemesis T is injured, the greater it will mutate. Rather than possessing a power limiter, the Nemesis T's mutations are theoretically kept in check by protecting its body with a thick coat designed to protect it from bullets and explosions. So, making it even more ridiculous to kill. Oh, of course. Unlike its brethren, the Nemesis T-type undergoes unique regenerative mutations. When in the field, the Nemesis T prototype suffered from severe mutations during, ex during its experiences in Raccoon City. Its coat was shredded when its rocket launcher exploded, and soon after it passed out in the burning ruins of the St. Michael Clock Tower. The explosion and subsequent fire injuries accumulated in its body and caused further mutation. Unlike most Tyrant series, who usually develop thicker skin and clawed arms, the Nemesis Alpha's tentacles became larger to serve as a weapon, but at the cost of damaging the brainstem. This mutation could be attributed to the parasite's presence in the host, whose exposure to the T-virus may have accelerated their mutation when damaged. At incineration disposal plant P-12A, Nemesis T was dropped into a vat of treatment chemicals 
designed for destroying biological waste. The Nemesis A survived, though the tyrant's body was virtually destroyed. Having suffered catastrophic injury, the parasite devoured the corpse of another T-103 and transformed what remained of the host body into a blob-like organism with tentacles. Lacking functional limbs, it instead crawled on the ground and with its damaged head, becoming a mouthpiece. Ooh, boy. Yeah, so that's why. Well, that at least explains why he comes back after incinerating him in acid. Yeah. And that's that on our boy Nemesis. He truly... To think that there are more Nemesis out there than Umbrella has yet to release is truly terrifying. Would it be Nemesis's or Nemesis? That's a good question. (laughs) Capcom, if you're listening, we need an answer. (laughs) What's the plural form of Nemesis? I think they would smack me at this point. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's it's truly a terrifying thought to think that there are multiple out there of Nemesis. Yeah, he's not my favorite B.O.W. I mean, he was quite literally able to nearly demolish an entire apartment complex. And also, you know, wields rocket launchers. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, and Gatling guns and... (laughs) Well, with all our B.O.W.s and characters out of the way, let's talk Unlockables for RE3. Woo! Now, this is the 1999 version. So keep that in mind as we go through this. So the first unlockable you can get is seeing the director's message. After you unlock all the character endings, you will see a special message from the director. One word one word of caution. This will be the only time you can see this. So after you complete all the character endings, you can only see it once. That's it. There is an alternate ending, which we talked about last episode. Um, but to get the alternate ending... When you're on the bridge, you need to, instead of pushing Nemesis off, you need to jump off. And that's the alternate ending where you get Barry to come rescue you in the helicopter as Carlos and Jill. So this one's really cool. It's actually eight unlockables in one. You have to beat the the game eight times over. Each time you beat the game past the first time, you will unlock an additional character's uh, epilogue. So these are the closings for each character from the series prior to three. Um, you beat the game once, you get Jill. Twice, Chris. Three times, you get Barry. Four times, you get Leon. Five times, you get Claire's. Six times, you get Sherry Birkins. Seven times is Ada Wong. And eight times, you get Special Agent Hunk's ending. We discussed the unlockables for Nemesis last episode, um, but some of the unlockable costumes in this one are you can get the biker costume, the disco costume, Jill's RE1 costume, a police miniskirt, Regina's costume from Dino Crisis. Now that's the cool one. Yeah. Um, you can unlock the boutique key, and you can also unlock Mercenaries minigame, which everyone knows about that one because all you have to do is beat the game. 
but those are some of the unlockables you can get in the original 1999 edition. I personally like the epilogues. I would just put on the Dino Crisis costume. <laughs> I am indifferent to all of that. Oh, you don't want to see what happens to Leon afterwards? I know what happens to Leon afterwards. <laughs> I played four. Right. Well, with all that being said and all that being discussed, well, I'm giving this one five nemesis out of five. <sighs> I'm giving this a three Leons out of five. Three out of five? Three was not my favorite game. I'm sorry. I know it was your favorite. Why Why was it not your favorite game? I loved the exploration of more of Raccoon City. However, I was not a fan of Nemesis. I was not a fan of being chased around by him nonstop. And the only thing I really liked out of it was Carlos's dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I wasn't, I didn't hate the game by any means. It was a good game and definitely worth playing. Oh, yeah. But it's not one of my favorites. Well, you know, teach their own, even if they're wrong. Wow. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, Daniel, what do you got? Well, we know my rating generally stays the same because of lack of Rebecca. So it gets the four out of five <laughs> Rebecca's. You know, we're only going to ever have the one. It's a out of five, five out of five. Because as Rebecca. I mean, technically five might get a higher rating, but I'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with all that being said, we look forward to our next episode where we will be talking with our patrons about the differences between the original RE3 and the remake. So until next week, see ya. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Bye there. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and a review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RE Lurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember... We might have something that might interest you, stranger. What up tonight, City? You're listening to N54 Radio. This is DJ Sparks bringing you a new hit show from Night City, Cyberpunk, a cyberpunk red live play podcast. Listen as a ragtag group slamming on the corpos. Survive the streets and try to keep from being flatlined. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. DJ Sparks out! Hello, this is Charlie Transmutation coming to you with another PSA announcement. No, Charlie, this is a commercial. What? Crap. Nobody told me that. Well, what are you supposed to do in this thing anyway? Well, Charlie, I'm glad you asked. This is the part where we introduce our new homebrew 5e D&D podcast, The Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit, where we explore the homebrew world of Alteris using homebrew rules and homebrew material from the Dungeon Master's Guild. Eh, sounds boring. I'm out of here. See you later, Charlie. We hope to have you guys come check us out soon. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.